There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. I'm publisher of the Climactic Collective, Mark Spencer, and you're listening to a very special episode. Uh, This little intro is going to be recorded as a one-take. So normally my process is I'll sit down, I'll have a little think about what I want to say, I'll say it, and then I'll say it again, and then I'll say it again until it sounds good and it comes out right. I don't tend to write anything down before these, so it's a real process of kind of like ideating, like, you know, multiple versions, uh, working out what I'm about to say. This is very different. I'm sitting on a couch at my cousin's house. I'm about to go out uh, to have some drinks on my birthday with some friends. Friends I haven't seen in nearly a decade, most of them. Um, and that's because my wife and I have just moved home to Auckland, New Zealand. And um, the great kind of uh, reacquainting with a bunch of people is now underway. So I don't really have time to do my normal process of record, re-record, re-record, edit, put it all together, polish it. So I hope this sounds okay, and I hope you're okay with this kind of off-the-top-of-the-head recording. This is a special episode because it's a birthday episode, not mine, but Climactic's. Uh, it was April 22nd, Earth Day, 2018, that we launched Climactic as a podcast. Uh, Rich Bowden and myself had decided that there wasn't enough podcasts in Australia talking about climate change and talking to regular, everyday, relatable Aussies. Uh, people who were volunteering at environmental groups, people who were, you know, voting for politicians. There's plenty of places you could find interviews with politicians about climate change, but not normal people and how they were feeling and what they were doing and how they were getting by. So we, you know, in our very humble way, uh, tried to fill that gap. And then fast forward three years later, and Climactic is just one. As you'll know, if you're listening to this, Uh, Just one of a network, a collective of over 20 other podcasts, all run by hosts who are doing the same thing. They are addressing a need. They're filling a gap. Um, These are really unique shows. These are, you know, uh, two mums talking about how they can live more sustainably themselves and how they're raising their kids to be prepared in the face of the climate crisis. Um, this is a, a young entrepreneur who's quit his day job to start a fashion label in 2021 and what it means to be a fashion label in 2021 when you know more than you ever have before and you simply can't uh, let yourself off the hook for as much. Or uh, a brewer at a brewery who doesn't talk about beer but talks about those kind of moments that occasionally... Uh, For those lucky, uh, those moments that happen in your life where you kind of realize that the whole world is connected and the whole wide world is one place, one little marble floating in space. And um, yeah, if you don't know already, that show is called The Overview Effect. Um, So I'm so unreasonably proud of this collective for what it is and what it's become and what it's on its way to be. 
Um, so proud that I want to play you a little bit here of a recent interview that two of the members of the collective did on the ABC. Uh, ABC Darwin, which is just really, really cool. We haven't had any episodes yet on the collective, as far as I'm aware, from any of the shows that were recorded in Darwin. So, hey, open call for any budding, up-and-coming, or, or hey, old and grizzled radio vets, you know, anyone who's comfortable or wants to speak into a mic in Darwin, in Alice Springs, in Cairns, in Perth, we've got gaps in our coverage of the Australian continent and the Australian experience of climate change and what we can do about it in our local communities. Um, we've got gaps we need to fill still, but it's it's amazing that we've got a good cohort in Melbourne, a good cohort in Sydney, on the central coast north of Sydney. We've got amazing people in Brisbane, um, and now myself kind of as a beachhead here in Auckland. Um, and we're actively, actively looking for and trying to empower people in the Pacific Island nations of Tonga, Fiji, Samoa, Kiribati, um, you know, throughout Melanesia, Micronesia, Polynesia, because uh, we want to hear those stories because it's so easy to feel disconnected from the fact that the climate crisis is real, but we're not going to feel it nearly as acutely here. It's going to take decades for us to feel it as acutely as it's being felt in the Pacific Islands right this very day. Like, yesterday was the scary future that we are scared of in Australia and New Zealand. Yesterday was that day for people in Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, the Torres Strait Islands. So, uh, two members of the collective recently went on ABC Darwin, and they went on to Spruik Podcasters Declare, which has been this campaign that's spawned out of the Climactic Collective it's an attempt to raise the volume for climate podcasts because if you're listening to this, congratulations, you found us. But there's a lot of people who don't know how to find a climate podcast. So one of the really cool things about this being a collective is that a lot of the, the shows on Climactic have their own individual audiences because they've got uh, networks. They've got uh, sort of spheres of influence around the creator of the podcast. And through being on a collective People who find show A can then be introduced to this wide world of, hey, there's 20 plus other shows, and they might find shows B, C, D, and E that they love as well. But otherwise, the state of discovery for climate podcasts is really broken right now and really hard. So you're going to hear all about what Podcasters Declare is from Sean Marsh and Manit Hora on ABC Darwin. And that's a short little clip. It's 10 minutes. And then you're going to hear one of my own personal favorites of anything we've released on Climactic. Um, and it's very self-indulgent. It's my birthday present to me getting to hear one of my favorite episodes on the show I publish. And um, I think, I know you'll enjoy it too if you listen all the way through. It's wonderful. Please let me know what you think. If you are inspired by it and you want to help tell a story like that about a piece of creative work that you like. I'm I'm, ca I'm very cagingly, cagingly, there it is, not saying the title of this because I'm not going to put it in the title of the episode. You have to listen to find out what it is going to be. Um, if it inspires you, let us know. Get in touch. Hello at climactic.fm is our email address. You can send us a voicemail super easily from our site, climactic.fm. If you go to climactic.fm and you get a security certificate warning, it's going to be fixed very soon. 
but uh, just hit advanced and proceed. There's nothing on the page that can harm you, and it's only a thing for e-commerce sites anyway, but this is uh, Google being a pain. It can't be a birthday episode without complaining about Google or tech service, right? So that's out of the way. Enjoy this chat with Jess Ong on ABC Darwin, and then hang around for a special surprise. And hey, everyone, be safe out there. Take care of each other. And um, yeah, stay safe in these climactic times. Thanks for listening. But who's advocating for podcasts about the planet? The planet A that we all live on. Well, you're about to meet a team who are an Australian team and who are doing just that. Jess Ong. Just sort of amps me up and, and gets me going. On ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Podcasts, they've been around for a while, but they're still relatively new compared to other forms of media. But despite this, they are hugely popular. I reckon it's safe to say if you're not making one, you're listening to one. And compared to other forms of media, podcasts have a fair bit of pulling power. You might be familiar with some of the court cases that have been picked up by podcasts both in Australia and overseas. A few of these podcasts have even revealed new information or at least have put cases under the spotlight to have them reopened or further investigated. Now, this pulling power is being used to agitate some of the big guns for change in relation to how podcasts about the climate in particular are being accessed. And it's all happening in the Southern Hemisphere. Sean Marsh and Manit Hora are from Podcasters Podcasters Declare, the team advocating for podcasts about the planet. Hi, Manit. Hi, Sean. Hey, Jess. How are you going? I'm very I'm very well. Uh, now, Podcasters Declare is a team of four. There's there's four of you. So, what was the moment you all decided, hey, we need to get together and do something about the way podcasts in relation to the planet or climate are accessed? Yeah, sure. So, we all, uh, all four of us, are part of a podcast collective called the Climactic Collective, um, and basically, it's just it's just a bunch of climate focused podcast shows. Um, and producers um, and fans that expands the you know environment, sustainability, social issues, but the intersection of that is, is all in climate. Um, and we've all, when trying to categorise our shows um, in various podcasting apps, but none of the categories suit our content. Mm. Um, you know, sort of natural sciences or uh, society and culture doesn't really seem to be the stuff our listeners would search for to find our stuff. Uh, that, um, that is right. The, the, um, the, the descriptors or the, the categories for podcasts are really broad. There is society and culture, which I think a whole lot of things um, just sit under, whether they are loosely related to society and culture or very closely tied to it. Mm, it's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite the umbrella term, really. It is. I, yeah, it is. I, Apple yeah. must have been um, really happy when they landed on that that one. They're like, yes, we're ticking all boxes. <laughs> um, Manit, why is it important that Apple in particular lead the charge on adding a climate category to their listings, which is what you and your team are trying to agitate for? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Apple added podcasts to iTunes back in 2005, um, and that basically just created one central location for listeners to subscribe and, you know, listen to content on. Um, and since then, they've dominated the podcasting space. You know, they've um, even supported the creation of podcasts through GarageBand. Um, and, you know, no offense, ABC Darwin, but, you know, Steve Jobs called podcasting the future of radio, right? <laughs> 
Um, so <laughs> Apple have made a lot of climate pledges, you know, and taken a lot of uh, steps forward on, on climate change. And so it just feels like a mistake that can easily be corrected. You know, it's been overlooked by the by the company and we're hoping to correct it as a team together. So basically you want um, Apple and all of the big podcast platforms to add a climate category to their podcast directory, which means that if you're interested in um, podcasts about the climate or about the earth, you can just go to this climate category and everything will fall in front of you for your easy listening. Um, why hasn't this been done earlier? Uh, it's it's interesting. So they did back in 2019 add three new categories: true crime, history, and fiction. And we know from just being in the industry that it was dictated by user demand. Um, and so we're thinking that they probably just haven't been told by you know listeners and podcasters that there is enormous demand for this. And so that's what our open letter is um, designed to achieve is to get them to pay attention and say, you know, we've added categories before and the entire industry followed. Let's do it again. So obviously Apple sets the pace. And as you said, they they added those three categories a couple of years ago. So there is precedent for change or addition of podcast categories. Your team has an open letter that's available for anyone to sign, whether you're a maker, listener, supporter of podcasts. What happens once your letter um, gets closed and get sent off um well, well we're hoping oh sorry marshy <laughs> no you go oh sorry i was just saying you know we're hoping that apple um adds a climate category um but if they don't then we're, we're planning to redirect um our focus to spotify um and maybe as a result you know both of them um do the right thing by you know which is to include a uh, or give climate podcasters a, a platform for their voices. Um, and Apple have announced on Earth an Earth Day event um, that they've invited journalists to. So we'll see and wait, you know, what happens. Um, and hopefully in typical Apple announcement fashion, it'll be a surprise of, you know, the addition of a climate category. Yeah, it's, well, pretty exciting that the agitation is coming from the yeah. Southern Hemisphere as well. You guys yeah. must feel pretty chuffed about that. Yeah, yeah for sure. sure. Yeah. Um, uh, why do you think, though, that this needs to come from the community? I mean, the fact that, you know, climate change is on everyone's lips. Apple has, you know, done their own pledges. Why do you think the community still needs to agitate as opposed to the company, I don't know, being a little bit assertive and thinking, hey, this is what we need to do. Let's be ahead of the game. Yeah, I, well, I think that most companies at the moment are very heavily um, being affected by consumer demand and um, and just general awareness of things that just need to be better. So you wouldn't have, say, Coke at the moment has just said that they'll try and be carbon neutral by 2030. Um, that just wouldn't happen if it wasn't for people's voices mm. rallying together and being heard. And and essentially our campaign is is trying to get people together to, to shout as loud as they can and amplify their voices and say, Apple, this is something you've overlooked. Um, you've got to do something about it. How many climate podcasts or climate-related podcasts are there at the moment? Such a good question. Um, because we don't have a shared space to congregate around, it's really hard to tell. Mm. You'd have to search for keywords climate in some podcast directories to actually figure that out. But it's not like you click on true crime, for example, and know that there are 40,000 true crime shows. Mm. Um, 
imagine if we had a climate category or even an environmental or sustainability category mm. um, and there were 20 30,000 shows that you could just go through and consume and learn from yeah um, very easily yeah it's eight minutes to 12 on ABC Radio Dial and the Northern Territory. My name's Jess Ong. I'm talking to Manit Hora and Sean Marsh. They're from Podcasters Declare, a team who have an open letter at the moment, which you're able to sign, um, pledging support for the addition of a climate category, which uh, the letter is then going to be sent to Apple Podcasts. They set the tone for the entire podcast industry. Um, Manit, when does the letter close? Do you have a closing closing date for when everyone needs to sign? Yep, so um, the closing date for the letter is the 22nd of April, which is um, Earth Day, and then we're hoping to send it off to Apple um, and hof- hopefully see the change. Who do you send these things to? Is there, like, letters at apple.com or something? Like, who do you who do you email <laughs> these things to? <laughs> we wish, but, um, yeah, Marshall. Yeah, there's, it's 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 re- it's really difficult actually. Um, you can find support from Apple on all of their specific products, but um, for podcasting, it's it's quite different. Um, so we've actually had producers and podcasters have reached out to Apple support, um, and they've they've kind of had to go in through a different channel to get to the right people. But essentially saying, hey, I don't have a category for my podcast. Can you can you add one, please? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just typical Apple support. Um, we know that we've been heard. Um, we've even heard uh, potentially the right people have said we have a nice website. So <laughs> while it's not the answer we want, uh, it's it, we're getting close. All right. Well, good luck. So there's four days left to sign and put your name down for the addition and invention, creation of a climate category um, or something similar that you're able to find all of the podcasts related to um, the environment, sustainability, um, to make life easier when you're searching for podcasts. Well, Manit and Sean, good luck on your quest and good on you for fighting the good fight. Thank Thank you so much, much, Jeff. That's Manit Hora and Sean Marsh from Podcasters Declare. If you're interested in signing the letter, you can do. You've got until Earth Day, which is the 22nd of April. Um, You can head to podcastersdeclare.com and you can read a whole lot more about what this team is working on and what their hopes are as a result of the letter being sent to the big guns in the world of podcasts. It's 6 to 12 on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. I've been busting for someone to ask me about the scenario of the grot. You know, like, what actually happened? (laughs) What happened? What's the grot? Or rather, what might happen to create the grot? To answer these questions, we first have to introduce you to Pat Grant. Because I grew up in Adelaide, so I want to say Pat Grant, but I think it should be Pat Grant because he comes from New South Wales. Dr. Pat Grant is a graphic novelist who teaches in the School of Design at the University of Technology, Sydney. But before he was a member of a faculty, he was a student and was the type of student we're all very familiar with. I was like a enviro convener as a student activist. So I was involved in like campus sort of enviro collective. 
and the Sean Network, which is a student environment activist network. That was kind of the time of the campaigns were Tarkine. I'm Bob and I'm here in front of Rest Point Casino in Hobart where the Tasmanian miners are holding their congress. They're talking about the Tarkine. Tarkine is Australia's largest temperate rainforest. John Howard protected it from logging back in 2004. Lake Cowell, New South Wales. My name's Neville Chappie Williams. I am a traditional owner of the Lake Cowell area. I came here today to fly over Lake Cowell and to witness the destruction that is happening to our dreaming place. Uh, and it was refugee. So we, we kind of spent a lot of time doing uh, refugee stuff. So it was the time of the big convergences on the Woomera Detention Centre and the Baxter Detention Centre. At that time, they started protesting here just outside the gates and there has the confrontation as we are now. David, can you tell us what brought this on? Protesting against the keeping of detainees in Woomera, talking about Australia's Indigenous policies, about its immigration policy, nuclear policy, things like that. But tonight was... And I was was so hopeless. (laughs) Well, my, 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 my contribution was always to, you know, make my way to the kitchen and just do work that made sense to me. And then I, I kind of went went from that into working in food co-ops. So I've, I've worked in a bunch of different food co-ops throughout my 20s. I've kind of been adjacent to the enviro sort of world most of my life. I do remember when I decided that my, my job was to be an artist and not to be an activist. <laughs> It was at like a Students of Sustainability conference. I had this sort of epiphany that I I was like, oh, the thing that I can do really well is tell stories and the movement needs that. And so I have to go all all in on that sort of realisation. Reframed a lot of my decision-making over the next couple of years. All the artwork I do is political and is about, for me, the big issues of the time. But I try and also sort of think about it as pop culture as well. That's got that's the sort of framework for thinking about what what kind of stories I want to tell. They have to be fun and entertaining and silly and but they also have to help me kind of understand the things that are troubling me about the world around me. It's really good. As a reader at least for me, I can see the evolution of where your concern was when you go from blue into the grot. Blue, which is my first book, I sort of see it as like a exploration of coastal culture and xenophobia. That came because I had a first-hand encounter at the Cronulla Riot and I felt like that gave me some sort of special story to tell. I knew coastal culture. I'd always been deeply troubled by it and so that book kind of was written in three weeks, but it was sort of, there was, you know, six years of uh, processing going on, uh, you know, seeing uh, seeing that, the kind of ugliness of, of the, that, I, that, I, that I'd sort of discovered after the Cronulla riot. And of course, this conversation was happening in the public intensely, this sort of, it's like the nexus of Australian identity and, and this sort of paranoia about refugees. Can I ask what was the experience of the Cronulla riots or is it not really something you want to talk about? Uh, it's not a fantastic sort of ripping yarn sort of story. I just I, I just arrived back from a trip overseas and we were at we're at this sort of punk DIY festival in Wollongong and 
we ended up in Cronulla on the drive home, and we didn't we didn't realise that this event was happening. Everyone else in the country knew, but we sort of stumbled into it, and it it, it was so ugly. So so obviously such an ugly sort of scene that we we kind of like. I think we 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 turned around and went home as soon as some like some Nazis handed us some propaganda. Oh, <laughs> far out. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, yeah. For our international listeners, the Cronulla riots were a series of racist conflicts in the southern beach suburbs of Sydney in 2005, fueled by race-baiting media coverage of an altercation between eight Middle Eastern men and two white surf lifesavers on Cronulla Beach. Rioters turned violent. A content warning here. This segment discusses white supremacists and includes depictions of violent racism. If you're not up to listening to that today, you can skip the next four minutes. We got here around mid-morning, uh, but people have been drinking uh, for, for hours already. There was certainly a lot of uh, tension in the crowd, so I'd walked into, a, into a, a mob situation that the police did not have control of. Out of the corner of my eye, I see this guy, and he's running for his life. He just got surrounded around the back of it uh, by probably about 20 guys, smashing him in the head with bottles and, and just punching him in the head. This is wrong. This, how's this going to end? This is just going to continue. Uh, and, you know, and at that point, you're thinking, well, the best thing I can do is take photos. I mean, I'm bearing witness to something here that's, that is a turning point. It was a ferocious uh, moment. It was um, humiliating as an Australian to watch. Yeah. It was like, it felt like a weird Australia Day celebration and then we got some swastika stickers handed <gasps> to us and then we realised how drunk everyone was and then we were like, okay, yeah. Yeah. This is, this is not for us. And then, and then in... In the time between us getting in the car and getting home, it just became the media event that everyone else experienced. And so that was kind of weird and interesting, seeing how, seeing it all happen on the TV after after we were just there. Yeah, and that kind of weird sensation of like, oh, that that's what that was. Okay, when you then realise. Yeah, do you know, yeah. like speaking of activism, it was that, you know, do you ever do that thing where you're at a rally and then you come home and watch the rally? on TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, instead of being this this big, holistic sort of uh, ex- experience, it's just like the ugliest, most hysterical moment. And so, yeah, my experience of the Cronulla Riot was gentler but um, more holistic. And we actually, we talked to all these people. It was almost like we were anthropologists, but, you know, because we didn't know what was going on. <laughs> so what, what are you guys doing here? Yeah. I felt like I had special access because of, of this sort of accident and so uh, uh, it became my my thing to write about for quite quite a long time you said you kind of went away and worked for food co-ops what was the driving factor of you coming back to activism again I, i i felt like i was at risk of burning out and falling into a pit of despair and i i had some people who are older than me mm-hmm. who I'd seen kind of go through that cycle too many times. I think I went into a time of self-preservation. I, I had this intuitive sense that I, I couldn't be like an all-in activist for all of my life. And so I kind of focused on art making and teaching and parenthood. <laughs> and so now I feel like it's it's time, you know, it's time for me to start um, contributing 
again. And I, I also feel like I've learned a lot of useful skills that I can contribute now that I probably didn't have when I was a, a younger activist. So yeah, I, and I, I, easing is the uh, appropriate word because I, it's pretty difficult going into like emergency activist mode when you've got like little kids around. I'm happy to talk about that actually, about my failures as an activist. There was a big sort of community meeting about developing like a, an activist strategy and, and I bumped out, I was at, I, I kind of just, I went along and I had this feeling of dread in from, that was just sort of like this weird, like a kind of trauma from, from being in my early 20s and being a, 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 an activist. And I kept bumping into people who I knew from that time who were also, who were also there and they also had this sort of haggard like, like look of fear, like they wanted to... Uh, <laughs> Just, just kind of going back into like the complexity of uh, you know community organising. It's a bit scary, but it's been fun. It's been we've done some fun stuff. You talk about how storytelling is really like the main game for you. Are there any stories, particularly to do with climate change, that get you inspired or excited at the moment? Yes. And look, for me, for me, the things that I, I, I really get excited about just how creative and science fiction-esque some of the visions of the future just have to be now. And I, I have to be very careful to say that I'm not like a technological optimist with my thinking about the future or about, about climate change. I'm, you know, like I'm super suspicious of technology, like I think a lot of people in the, in the climate movement are. But like, a, like, like Tim Flannery talking about seaweed. Yeah. And while we don't have a clip of Tim Flannery, here's Damon Gamow from the documentary 2040. Until recently, large seaweed forests ran along many of the world's coastlines. They provided habitats for marine life, local food and jobs, and made for terrific fake beards. But with most of the heat from global warming going into our oceans, much of this seaweed has been wiped out including 95% of kelp along the east coast of Tasmania. But there is a solution. Scientists have discovered a way to regenerate the seaweeds. Seaweeds actually draw down carbon dioxide from the ocean waters and they restore the alkalinity of the ocean that enables shellfish and other creatures to thrive. Like, I, I don't necessarily have the expertise to critique that as a, like an academic or to, or, to, or to speak about the truth or the effectiveness of, uh, of this thing. But, but just the way, the way someone can describe, like, this outrageous sort of Mad Maxi science fiction sort of setup, people making these sort of hempen structures out in the ocean and, uh, and, and growing, like, seaweed and r running these sort of automated aquaculture, you know, setups and then sinking that seaweed to a, you know, to the deep ocean and it, it reminds me of uh like a Neil Stevenson novel which uh, which you know like it's it's utterly it's fascinating and and interesting. And I love I love how creative we all have to be now. You know, but like fixing this problem or 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 surviving is going to require like every every scrap of creativity we have. As far as storytelling goes, I think storytelling is done about 1% of the job it needs to do to helping us understand climate change. 
and helping us understand how what what the future might look like and and how we might actually survive and how we might thrive and how we might be happy you know the, the, all, all of these things are, are kind of like they're pictures that science can't necessarily paint one of the things that's so difficult about the politics of climate change is that people can't imagine the day-to-day reality of the futures that are being proposed, the bad ones as well as the good ones. And that's what storytellers can bring to the climate movement is, is helping people understand what happiness looks like in, in 2100. How does humor work after ecosystems collapse? You know, like like all of these things are necessary. My prediction is that all all fiction is going to become climate fiction pretty soon. As a species, we're all going to have to turn all of our resources to this problem, and storytellers don't get out of that. And that brings us back to The Grot, Pat's second novel. How does it fit into the mantle of responsibility that Pat feels as an activist turned storyteller? But first... What's it about? I've been busting for someone to ask me about the scenario of the grot. You know, like, what actually happened? <laughs> What's the world? The book is sort of set in a future Australia, somewhere in the north of Australia. It doesn't all click together with a clear rationale, but my idea was that um, ocean levels had risen and there'd been some massive energy crisis. All of the things that fossil fuels provide for us have kind of fallen away and humans are, are scrambling to, to figure out how to be prosperous and how to, how to be well-fed and how to get by. I feel like I, I, I always get so frustrated with people who are projecting what life's going to be like as the climate warms and things get hairy. And they kind of just go straight from like, leave it to beaver to the road. That's just so lazy because there's, there's, there's this sort of, if we know anything about like uh, ecological problems, is is that they ha- sort of happen in gradations. You know, there's this there's this long sort of smear of history. I agree with Pat about how the despairing, apocalyptic depiction of climate change is a lazy form of storytelling. I would say it's more than that. What I would call the dominant Hollywood stories that assume climate collapse is inevitable enables narratives of eco-fascism. They are fun thrillers, but if your only visions of a changed climate are ones of inevitable and extreme violence, how does anyone actually learn to de-escalate the situation? It's something I'm interested in, so if you have expertise in the area, please reach out. I'm kind of interested in this sort of period where the abundance is over, but we've still got this massive population. I was thinking about like say you're a you're a cotton farmer and you have a you know you have a, a standard agri business and suddenly uh, you can't get your fertilizers suddenly you can't get your Roundup which you've been spraying like flagrantly on your on your crops for your entire life and so suddenly like your role in society is to produce fiber but uh, like what do you do and so I just imagine like we immediately start to revert back to the way things might have been done in the early 1800s so you go okay i'm gonna buy some sheep i'm gonna make wool and that wool's gonna be shipped to to the city and tailors are gonna start making wool suits again that's helping me understand how the fashion works in the world 
You know, like, there's a lot of people who are wearing tailored suits, but there's also, like, kids walking around with, like, team-building exercise T-shirts from, from, you know, the world we live in today. Eve's seen firsthand the amount of waste from single-use textiles. And that's just from what gets donated to Reverse Garbage, where she works in Sydney. Likewise, I worked at a charity op shop chain in Melbourne, and seeing this otherwise forgotten, disposed of, or undervalued commodity stream as the height of fashion is a cool element to Pat's world building. But getting away from the textiles of the world, we promised you a story about the Grot. The story is about these these two brothers, and they're they're heading north to start a business. What did you, were you confused by the <laughs> by all the like algae and mycology and brewing and? St- I was about to ask you about all the fermentation. Yeah. <laughs> so this is another this is another theory I have. We are just so obsessed with technology and we fetishize innovation so intensely, for better and for worse. But what happens when we don't have? fossil fuels and all of the things that that are built upon fossil fuel technology and and I kind of had this idea okay so the the era of fossil fuels might also be thought about as the era of sterilization where most of the science we do most of the industrial processes we use where we we spend a lot of time and energy and chemicals making things clean making sure that there's Things you know, there's no life growing on our uh, our surfaces and on our our implements and on our our fabrics. I've read somewhere that we really don't know a lot about most bacteria because we don't know how to grow it. We can only grow a very small percentage of uh, of the bacteria that exists. So that idea got into my head, and I was like, okay, so what if innovation in this world is all about things that grow? Suddenly, we've changed our focus to this vast and rich microbial world and mycological world and so the premise of the book is that there's a there's an algae that's been discovered it has a potential to do a lot of the things that oil did for us but nobody knows how to grow it yet and so for this finite period if you can get some of this stuff every venture capitalist in this disgusting new world is going to want to buy it from you this place where this algae has been discovered has become like a gold rush sort of environment, this sort of gross, disgusting, slimy, sweaty boom town. And like all gold rush environments, it's uh, full of con artists. And that is the the engine of the story, is that uh, you're wondering whether or not these kids are going to get conned. Speaking of cons... The, the boys themselves are uh, uh, yogurt manufacturers. I, I sort of thought that... In a world where we didn't have the uh, industrial sort of artifices to to create the medicines that we used to rely on, a bunch of uh, swindlers and scoundrels would step in and start brewing up things that might work as medicine. As we started using them with uh, our families, specifically with our little kids, and saw how, how fast they worked and how easy it was to be able to help all of our health, it was awesome. We fell in love with them. Now when my wife and I talk about the oils, it's like, what did we do before the oils? Just make a buck out of anyone who's willing to give it a go by the sounds well, of it is how yeah, I read that's it. That's kind of how medicine was, right? Up until like we uh, created controlled environments, figured out how to collect rigorous data, like medicine was snake oil. But care was better. Care was holistic in a way that it's not now. I do like to think about this sort of transition as, you know, 
there there are good things and and bad things and it's still i'm still not sure whether these whether this yogurt business that they're going to set up is a snake oil business or the real deal future books might help me figure that out said it's like a boom town in this world inequality is really stark in it is there like those sort of gated communities in your head where the ecosystem is more sound and that sort of thing ah the classic uh that's a fantastic sci-fi trope that i haven't even considered i need to get to elysium Whoever has this has the power to override their whole system. The apocalypse with a utopia sort of uh, housed within. I don't know. I, d- I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think there's a there's a place where the landscape isn't traumatized. I think that might just be one of the rules of the world. But uh, but the inequality that again that again came from that kind of line of thinking with the cotton farmer where you're like. Okay, you're you're in the transport business. You're you know you you service to society's freight and logistics, and suddenly you can't get petrol, and suddenly you can't fix your uh, machines. What do you do? You start hoarding bicycles and the best quality, highly engineered cycling equipment manufactured. You jerry rig your machines so that they run on human power. It's utopian and dystopian at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> the idea sounds so great, but I just can't see it happening without uh, slavery or indentured servitude or some kind of dreadful class stratification happening. The book opens and the the main characters, the mum sort of sitting inside an old Suzuki Vitara, jerry-rigged to be peddled by four humans. The two boys are sitting on top and there's like a labourers, I guess, you know, sitting, pushing the pedals. And you can imagine it's creaky and slow and takes ages to get anywhere. Eve here with a quick dive into mobility justice, a term for the disparity and equality of access to transport and mobility. The Grot builds a world that's pretty consistent with climate predictions in a lot of ways, and bikes are a great example of it. In the Grot, we see a version of bikes that's recognisable in the politics of bikes right now, only much more extreme. Mobility justice, or the ability to freely move through a society, has been pedal powered for over a century. From Black Lives Matter to the suffragettes, the access to such cheap and agile transport is a critical source of social movement. In the grot, bikes have outlived the fossil fuel industry and are now the only source of power. They are the sole means for anyone to get to or from the grot and thereby any chance of social progression. But as the only form of mobility at scale, they are also sources of oppression and exploitation. Literally faceless characters provide pedal power to the upper classes. Just like today, bikes are a means of gaining and exercising power. As a cyclist myself, I like how this dichotomy is exaggerated in Pat's world. I go solo bike touring, where I pack my camping gear and head off an adventure alone. It's an addictive freedom, knowing that I can just set off and fix my bike myself if something goes wrong. What I didn't realise when I set off to the mountains for the first time was that I was doing a feminist act. My fun was too much for the men around me. I was screamed at from car windows. 
Men would slow down and ask me what I was doing out here by myself and pointedly ask if I needed a place to sleep. One man actually snatched my bike off me and demanded I justify why I was qualified to progress. Don't worry, I laughed at him and got my bike back and went on my way. I mean, oh my God. So in the grot, Pat has taken parts of what is latent in our society and made it more extreme. It's consistent with what the science tells us about what to expect from a business-as-usual climate pathway. My favourite part of the book is, well, one of my favourite parts is this um, punk band section. A teen hangout, really, but the punk band has to run on pedal power, so... Yes. So that to so they're all pedaling and playing at the same time. That that to, that to me is the more utopian side of things, where the you know it's sort of this kind of DIY like let's power our own punk band, and I love the idea of this angry punk band getting angrier as they ride and get short of breath. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with this sort of decentralized. Yeah, I, li- I like that that youth scene. I, I thought that that would maybe somewhere I would have liked to hang out when I was uh, nineteen. Yeah, I did enjoy the Kevin 07 t-shirt as well. (laughs) (laughs) Already a relic. Um, Okay. What did you think of the book? Did you like, what was your experience reading it? I'm not going to spoil it for the listener, but there's a scene towards the end where something happens to one of the key characters and then you go through and talk about the stories of all these other different characters Uh, that you haven't seen in the city. And you have like this kind of, yeah, the the classic con storyline and then towards the end it's like you paint the picture of the biggest city and you're like, it's pretty devastating, really, that bit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's even tough for me to, um, to, to read that section, that sort of coda. And, uh, and it really, it's really like the trying to hammer home what kind of place these characters have found themselves in with no money and no one to really look after them. So one of the things that happens when you draw comics and you're silly enough to draw a comic in a crowded city is that you just have to draw thousands of strangers, constant scenes where these people walking through town and there's just extras, extras sort of like, and I can't just play, pay some gooner like like a hundred bucks to show up for the day. I have to make them up, you know, like, and it's actually impossible, you, you know, like if you try and make it up, they all just seem like these weird, like formless nobodies. So I started just drawing people I knew. And uh, that was simply a solution to the problem that was in front of me on any on any given day. I just, I realised how much this was a meditation on what the day-to-day life of my loved ones might be. Like there's a particularly distressing drawing for me where I drew my niece and my nephew and my son and they're like little like street kids, like street orphans. Yeah. And they've, uh, they've just pinched, they've just pinched some fruit. And my son is sort of standing there naked with some sort of skin disease, you know, and uh, and he's just trying to get he's just trying to get in on the action, you know, like he's just trying to get some banana. And uh, oh man, it's uh, it's a distressing drawing, you know. It's a real, it's really tough every time every time I see it. But yeah, like I mean, every page has someone I know sort of in the background, just trying to get by. Uh, yeah, and so for me, it's been this kind of. Uh, this this personal meditation on on uh, on what the future could be and how grim it could get or how uh, how how great it could be too.
and in the grot, Pat shows both these sides of human nature. In a world that may seem at first glance to be bizarre and unrecognisable, with its muddy world and strange algae that can turn swamp waiters into millionaires. But look closer and you'll see some glimmers of the grot surrounding us now. The economic dislocation of a cohort of cycle-bound workers, a growing interest with the biological and even fungal solutions to some aspects of the climate crisis. You'll see in the grot desperate grifters and conmen, but also those still willing and eager to trust, callous violence and a love of family. You can read the grot in total from Pat's site, patgrantart.com. You can also get the book in a physical copy there. And thank you to Pat Grant for his ruminations and thoughts on his works The Grot, Blue, his history in climate activism, and thoughts, fears, and hopes for the future. Thank you to host and interviewer Eve Brennan, producer Lloyd Richards, who also provided music for this episode, production assistance and leveling from Sean Marsh, and additional music from Tom Day and Pushka. I'm Mark Spencer, publisher of The Climactic Collective. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Artbreaker. We love getting reviews and hearing your feedback. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd greatly appreciate it if you'd share it with a friend. You have been listening to a podcast on the Climactic Collective. The podcast network for Australia's climate community. To find out more about us and all the shows on the network, visit climactic.com.au.